Is that true? Or did you just read it on the internet? This week on Download This Show, misinformation moves a hell of a lot faster than truth online. But when it comes to elections, to COVID, 5G, vaccines, QAnon, bloody chemtrails, are the moves by social media platforms to tackle misinformation, are any of them actually working? And more importantly, what do you say to a person online that you know is sharing content that you also know is untrue? What's the best way of handling that? Let's find out. This whole episode is dedicated to tackling online misinformation. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show and it is a distinct joy to be able to reintroduce Ariel Bogle to the show. Thank you for coming back and joining us on the show. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here. Uh, Ariel Bogle, uh, you will be familiar with across the ABC, but she's currently an analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and also joining us from Business Insider and Gizmodo, Cameron Wilson. Welcome back to Download This Show. Hey, Mark. The last few years have seen a massive discussion around online misinformation, whether it was the 2016 US presidential election, whether it's been misinformation around COVID-19 or indeed right now, misinformation around the vaccines that are rolling out. So we want to dedicate this show to... How do you go about tackling online misinformation? It's a very big, sprawling topic. It's not just one form, but we're going to try and break it down. Ali, I'm going to start with you, and it's a big question, which is where does online misinformation, at least in general, broad strokes terms, where does it start? Oh, it really depends on what the misinformation is because we see, you know, throughout anti-vaccine misinformation, uh, QAnon, which I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail, they really build off past tropes, even tropes that go back uh, centuries. So if somebody sent me a Facebook post that had something they were curious about, I mean, I would just see if it fit into really familiar narratives around, you know, evil doing or something like that. But then I would dig in. So there are plenty of tools out there at this point where you can uh, sort of look at particular types of phrasing, see where it has repeated, try and track it back to its original source. Uh, maybe it was a misinterpreted uh, media report. Maybe it was a misinterpreted thing that a politician said. You know, it's really hard and really case by case. I think what's kind of the most noteworthy part to me is that there are kind of super spreaders. There are people out there who, for whatever reason, are making it uh, their mission to to spread information that's just wrong, whether they uh, usually when they know it um, or or sometimes if they just kind of take things that take a, you know, kind of a partial half look at things that fit their agenda. So, you know, sometimes you do have that kind of nefarious, like the idea of like a government-sponsored campaign to try and put out the wrong facts about a vaccine, for instance. But sometimes you've also just got people who are maybe they're uh, partisan, maybe they have their own axe to grind, who will find stuff that, you know, from from a little, from, you know, it's essentially it's like not the whole truth, this is a part of the truth, but they'll use that to drive certain parts of the narrative. So, you know, an example of that with vaccines is, you know, in any trial there are always going to be illnesses, there are going to be sometimes even deaths, and that's sometimes something to 
do with the vaccine and sometimes nothing to do with that. And news news places will report on that. You know, it's very common to see people take that stuff out of context to prove a larger narrative, even though it may not be, you know, factually incorrect. It's still taken by itself, doesn't give a full kind of spectrum of the, um, understanding the issue. So you kind of, you see it in all places, um, but, you know, it all really is to often to push their own cause. I mean, we can look at some of the misinformation that was spreading in the early days of the pandemic, you know, February, March, February, April, March last year, when we were looking at the posts that were going viral that were about, you know, uh, keeping your throat moist to ensure the virus doesn't take hold, which is not true. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, you know, things like this, you know, it's probably not helpful from the start to be like evildoers, you know, people profiting from this disinformation. This is kind of vaguely in the folklore category, I would say. We all have certain beliefs about our bodies, about health that kind of get passed down. I mean, if I look at myself, I hold it very true for some reason that taking a cold shower is better than taking a hot shower. But where did I get that from? Is that from like my family folklore? Did I hear that on YouTube once? You know, there's all kinds of things in that category that really might start from a place of you know, somebody truly believes that keeping your throat moist may help with the virus for some reason. It gets passed uh, to another friend, to another friend throughout families. And the motivation there is not necessarily nefarious by any means. It's about sharing and caring. You know, it doesn't seem that dangerous to share a piece of misinformation about uh, keeping your throat moist, but it's more of just in case sharing. So is this true? I'm not really sure, but I'm going to share it with my mom just in case because I want her to be healthy and well during a pandemic. So that's on one end. I mean, and then we can look at uh, the misinformation industry, the people making money from it who have a strong motivation to spread it all the way up into, um, you know, mis- uh, I, would, I guess you would call them influence operations by foreign powers who, of course, also exploit certain types of disinformation. So it's probably not helpful to put it all in one bucket and try and intersect. Yeah, no, but although that being said, I would like to dedicate a significant portion of this show just to exposing all of the old wives' tales we've been telling each other and how to, as a confessional <laughs> space. Cam, is there anything you want to get off your chest, some like deeply non-scientific held belief that you want to talk about? Oh, look, you know, I could talk about getting, when you get a cold head, you get sick. I don't think that's always true, but we might leave that for another time. (laughs) So let's talk about state-sponsored misinformation then. Which nation-state actors are the best developed at it? And what are their actual goals? Because it seemed, particularly around some of the misinformation that spread in the 2016 uh, US presidential election, some of it seemed at least with the benefit of hindsight, like it only really existed to, to sow chaos. Well, first I would say that all countries engage in different versions of this. There's um, no one country that is uh, pure and innocent, I think, in this regard, even if it is misinformation aimed at their own citizens, which is something we see quite often as well. So, of course, there's the 2016 uh, election, which has been sort of well scrutinised, where Russian actors were... I guess uh, trying to promote social division online. So it wasn't necessarily telling people, you know, vote for Trump explicitly from the start, but trying to join uh, groups or create groups on places like Instagram and Facebook where they talked about social issues that are flashpoints in the United States, you know, issues around gun rights, around race, around uh, things like that. So building from there. I think in the years since, although that was a very real situation, uh, all too often I think we point to foreign interference when looking at disinformation, when we should often look internally at uh, people within our own political institutions or, or our own influences who are spreading that kind of stuff. 
But we are starting to see uh, some influence operations, I suppose, build around the vaccine drive. You know, 2020 was certainly the year of pandemic, uh, COVID-related misinformation. This year, it's important to keep a close eye on vaccine-related misinformation, disinformation as vaccine drives begin. And we have already seen some level of activity from Russia and China, which both have their own vaccine candidates as well, try, uh, amplifying, I suppose, negative stories about Pfizer. So they're not necessarily uh, stories that are 100% wrong. I mean, we can look a few weeks ago, there was a lot of news reports about an incident in Norway where a number of residents in aged care died after getting the Pfizer vaccine. And that requires us to look at whether the vaccine actually did cause their death because certainly people in aged care, I mean, often die. So were these numbers out of the ordinary? Were they directly related to the vaccine? That was something that the Norwegian health authorities were looking into. But in the meantime, uh, actors in from China and from Russia in state media and sort of diplomatic accounts were amplifying some of these negative stories without the context necessary to allow people to really understand what those stories meant. We should also uh, be careful, I think, you know, not to overstate the role of disinformation. Um, Obviously, it's like a hugely engaging topic. But when you talk to people who have studied anti-vaccination communities for years, they really talk about, you know, there are the people on one side who are firmly set in that agenda. Maybe they are profiting from it. There's a, certainly an anti-vaccination misinformation conspiracy ecosystem you know, on YouTube and other platforms where it is a matter of livelihood. That's what they make their money from. But then in the middle, there's lots of people who you might call vaccine hesitant or who have mm. concerns and questions. And really, their minds are not necessarily changed by uh, getting hit over the head and being told they're wrong, it's more likely that they'll change their minds or be convinced or satisfied about the safety of vaccines, probably through a one-on-one chat with the GP or with a trusted friend, you know. So there's this community of vaccine hesitants hesitants? I don't know if that's the right way to put it. No, I think think, think that's the term they use, yes. Yeah, who might be, uh, who might see some uh, appeal in investigating anti-vaccination content or have it raise questions for them. But we should be careful not to put everybody in the anti-vax bucket if they express any concern about vaccinations at all. Yeah, it's not it's not even a spectrum. It's sort of an amorphous group where, you know, you can't put people into, into clear buckets for sure. I mean, then that is, of course, one of the dangers of conversations like this is the tendency to talk about things as a, as a singular group, and I don't necessarily want to do that. Um, you can't really do a conversation around online disinformation in uh, 2020, 2021 without talking about the weird elephant in the room that was the vast elaborate conspiracy theory that was QAnon. That would seem to be at least, I mean, looking at it now with the benefit of some history, uh, Cam, (laughs) it would seem to be more on the extreme end of things, would you say? Yeah, I'd say it's a pretty extreme <laughs> idea that um, that you know political elites are uh, abusing and and um, sacrificing children, um, and it kind of it does seem like it is changing in the post-Trump era. And I'm kind of hesitant to call it the post-Trump era. That's probably the easiest way to delineate it. But you know, around the same time that Trump got kicked off. Uh, Twitter and other platforms. There was also, I think, another big crackdown by the social media networks to to try and get rid of that content on their platforms. So, you know, QAnon, Twitter accounts, Facebook accounts, that kind of thing. 
um, that we saw a big reduction in the kind of content they're putting out there. Um, the people who are the you know adherents, the really devoted um, fans of the crazy conspiracy theory, you know they I'm sure still believe it, but they've had to kind of go to other recesses of the internet, and um, increasingly there aren't actually that many, and the ones that there are, you know, aren't very uh, aren't necessarily as widely used, and sometimes aren't even very good at all. So, mm. um, you know, it, it's a conspiracy theory that remains, uh, and it it I mean in an incredibly short amount of time, like you know, it was only really started just. I think three, three or four years ago, um, that managed to have such a big impact in the end on on politics. But I do sense at least a little bit that um, we might have passed the peak. Um, but I guess that waits to be seen. Download this show is what you're listening to. We are dedicating the show to online misinformation, where it comes from, where it's going, and how you can tackle it. Our guests this week are Ariel Bogle from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and Cam Wilson from Business Insider and Gizmodo. Mark Fennell is my name. And obviously, over the last couple of months, we've seen fairly sizable crackdowns on misinformation accounts or accounts that could be identified as sharing misinformation on the big sort of blue chip social media services, your Facebooks and your Twitters. But of course, there's a lot more to the internet than Facebook and Twitter. And it's been interesting seeing some of the commentary around how um, areas like uh, messaging services like Telegram, Signal, even the newish audio one, Clubhouse, are proving to be a lot harder to police, Cam. What are the sorts of issues that are facing those social media services when they have to deal with these kinds of communities that pop up on their platform? I think the first thing from some of these uh, different platforms that aren't as big and aren't necessarily as open always is that there isn't always a big effort to moderate them. So, you know, these are um, companies that are run by small amounts of people with often very few, if any, moderators. Um, so, you know, the amount of resources they put in to actually crack down on this stuff um, isn't, isn't necessarily as much. Um, they're also not as open. You know, some of these are, um, are kind of smaller, you know, they, they encourage the creation of small spaces. And by that, I mean, like, you know, you have these on, on something like Telegram, which is where a lot of radicals have kind of gone to being kicked off Facebook and Twitter. Um, you know, they are spaces that sometimes, you know, you've got to have a kind of link to get to. It's not as easy to find them. And so I guess the moderation of them um, is, is a little bit more difficult because it, it's kind of hard to actively find. I think the other reality is that, you know, so much of, of the last, uh, what, decade of this discussion about moderation on content platforms is a lot of it has been really led by journalists. You know, there's this kind of joke that journalists are the real moderators of places like Facebook and Twitter because often they'll be the people to be like, hey, we found something, you should do something about it. And so, you know, I'm always kind of conscious that, you know, uh, I'm thinking about uh, is a problem actually happening and we're just not observing it or is it not happening at all? And sometimes it's kind of difficult to know between and particularly given the way that many platforms approach transparency, you know, telling people what they've done, it can make it hard to really evaluate, well, how much of this stuff is actually happening on the platform and how much are we seeing? What are the, I mean, Ariel, if you were Clubhouse, for example, which is a very, very new uh, platform where people can kind of join extended audio conversations at the moment. If you're an organisation like Clubhouse, you're very hot, lots of attention being paid to you, but also there's already been criticism about lack of moderation or in some cases none at all. What were the first things you would be doing to kind of guard yourself against the future where we sort of know, like we know that any online community is going to face some of these challenges. What would be the first thing you would do? 
Oh, it's such a card, but good you question. You are not paid enough to ask this question. <laughs> I'm not paid enough. I would like, if Clubhouse wants to take me on and give me that multi-million salary, I'll, I'll give it some strong thought. Consider uh, this a job interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it's very relevant to my interests because audio and audio as a vector for misinformation and disinformation is so fascinating to me, particularly because it's really hard to moderate at the moment. So like even just look at podcast platforms. So platforms like Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Google's podcast platform as well. Those platforms have, I mean, it's so easy to find QAnon podcasts on those platforms, to find um, anti-vaccination podcasts on those platforms. And when I've asked, say, Google about it, they just say, oh, well, we index all the audio on the internet. And so we don't really have a role to play in removing that content. So, you know, there's sort of a designed the system for podcasts in a way you know, it's a choice they've made about moderation to not moderate. So <laughs> this idea that people who, you know, and like Clubhouse too, where they're kind of coming to moderation questions now, I think it was an active choice from the start not to think about these issues or not to build your platform with moderation in mind. And, you know, it's really a minefield because as soon as you start talking about things like this, people are like, well, you love censorship. You want content to be removed. You know, it really just puts you straight in the firing line of this kind of conversation. But Clubhouse, I think we've seen recently there's been a lot of chatter just by users of that platform that they're not happy with it. They don't feel that the content, the platform is looking after user safety uh, for certain communities, say, uh, especially women or people of colour or certain communities on there feel that they are... uh, that the conversations that are taking place on there often, you know, make them feel bad, make them feel unsafe, make them feel unwelcome, particularly. So it just certainly seems to be an issue for Clubhouse that they are building a platform where some of their users will leave if this keeps going. So they're certainly going to have to come to this issue at some point. In terms of how to do it, I mean, I really... I think I'd leave that to people that use it a little more. I actually find Clubhouse really hard to use because it's literally just hundreds of people talking at once and I, I cannot, cannot bear it. We are going to do it on the show because I find it so... Um, so if you haven't used it before, you uh, the, and invites are sort of slowly proliferating around the internet at the moment, but you log on, you kind of tell it your interests and then it suggests a bunch of rooms you can listen into. And it's sort of like, imagine every podcast you've ever heard that's just a group of people talking, i.e. this one, only not at all edited and a little bit chaotic. There's a, it's a part of it, I understand the sort of the discrete communities appeal of it. There's another part of it that feels a bit shambolic and I can't quite tell if it's going to be one of those ones that takes off and becomes huge or if it's one of those ones that is a flash in the pan that, that dies quickly. It also leaves moderation really to its users at the moment. So you want to start a room on Clubhouse where people will talk, you become the moderator, you invite a certain set of speakers you think are good on that topic, you might assign some other moderators as well. And so in that way, it kind of resembles Reddit where certain subreddits that have a focus, say, about like politics or about uh, dogs or whatever, uh, ha- you know, create a certain set of moderators that uh, have that shared interest in the topic and set the kind of ground rules for the conversation. And it kind of works on Reddit and there's mm. a lot of really dedicated moderators who have been doing mm. that moderation work for a long time unpaid. Uh, Clubhouse, on the other hand, because it's audio and because it's so much more Immediate. I think there is something different about audio, which makes that community moderation potentially more difficult even than it is on Reddit. And it's already pretty difficult on Reddit. Yeah. Hey, uh, download the show as what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. We are talking online misinformation. Uh, just looking forward, Cam, 
uh, and not so much about uh, sort of those smaller communities like Clubhouse, but if you were looking to curate, say, your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed, those sort of big um, social media platforms that most that many of us have, what are the sorts of things you can do to, I guess, clarify or clean up your timeline if you don't want to see that stuff? Are there things you can actually do as a user? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there are a lot of structural issues and things that platforms can do, but at the end of the day, you know, we all have a responsibility as social media users to be careful about the information that we're sharing as well. So, you know, when you're scrolling through your social media feed and, and you see something that you want to share with other people, you should be skeptical. You should decide, you know, whether you, th- you know or you're, you're pretty confident that the content that you're seeing is legitimate because, you know, you have this responsibility. You're about to show, you know, all the people who follow you that this, you're about to show them this content and in a sense vouch for it. Um, we, we do have a choice of the people we follow. We have a choice over the content that we share as well. Um, I think that people should just be aware that, you know, I always just say, like, if it seems too good to be true, it sometimes and often is, and you should always think about it. You know, I think that one of the major causes of misinformation spreading is that people want the information to be real. You know, they see something that confirms an already existing belief or bias that they have, and they share it as a way of affirming the things that they already believe. And so that, I think, to some extent, you know, turns off that little part of the brain that's a bit more sceptical, say, you know, the opposite situation where you see something that uh, actually shows that whatever you believe is wrong, you're probably more likely to be like, hmm, I might just like, you know, look into this a little bit more. So, mm. yeah, I think we can, we can all individually um, have a kind of influence over that and, and be careful about the stuff that we're putting out as well. Any thoughts, Ariel, on things you can do to manage your own sort of social media e- ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, Cam had some good advice there, those rules around if you see a piece of content that really provokes a strong emotional reaction in you, it's probably worth examining this. I mean, it's hard, you know, there's a, people uh, dedicate their lives to studying the cognitive sort of psychology of this space. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why we share what we share. It's something that we've maybe heard in the, you know, coming back to that health issue, you know, we've heard that cold showers are good for you. <laughs> your mom, and then you see I love that you, you're committing to that one. I know. Well, like, I literally had a cold shower this morning. Um, you sort of, and then you see a YouTube video that says uh, cold showers cure cancer. And you're like, oh yeah, I mean, I did think that were, <laughs> did work, you know, so we have to really examine those motivations about <laughs> ourselves. And I mean, at the end of the day, there are sort of like, you can block, you can mute, there's all these kinds of functions. I mean, I don't want to put all the responsibility on people to yeah. have to build a healthy ecosystem for themselves, but there are options. Say if you want to use Twitter better, you could try TweetDeck where you can create lists of people that might share your interests in uh, cognitive psychology, for example, create that list, follow that list. You can certainly block words on Twitter, places like Twitter as well and on Instagram. So there are those steps, um, but obviously at the end of the day... There's a big picture issue here that needs to be addressed. Let's flip the script here a second here. What do you do, Cam, when you see somebody you know posting something that you think is a bit sus? Like how, what's the best way of executing that conversation? Do you leave it alone? Do you engage? And if you engage, how do you engage? I tend to engage, uh, but that's the, the person I am. I'm always up for a bit of a chat about something. Um, and because, you know, I believe that people are often not spreading false stuff because they know they just may not have looked into it deeply enough or they may have misunderstood something or just believed it, you know. 
Um, so I'll often have a conversation with them. I mean, I think the, the cardinal rule is like, if you see something that you don't believe, don't like share it being like, is this true? Like, what do you guys <laughs> think? Because you are, you know, you're, you're continuing to spread it. Or sometimes, you know, even if you see information that's false, it's not always the best idea to then share it again and be like, oh, this is not true because that again, encourages to spread it. And, and, you know, maybe people who are in your feed, who follow you, um, will kind of see that and then decontextualize it and pass it on. So, yeah. you know, you can unintentionally make these things worse. But I think, you know, very often it's just worth having a quiet conversation saying, hey, you know, I'm not sure if you realize, but I don't think this is right. This is maybe why. People are often, you know, they want to do the right thing generally. Um, it's just they don't always know what the right thing is. What about you, Ariel? What's your strategy? Yeah, it's a good question. It really depends. Um, like Cam, sometimes I weigh in. It really is kind of a cost-benefit analysis <laughs> of like how bad it's going to reflect on your family. <laughs> like, you know, if it if it's a relative sharing something, you know, is it going to provoke Armageddon at Christmas? Like this kind of thing. Mm. So yeah, I mean, I do try and take the conversations offline often. So rather than saying replying in the Facebook comments, I might try and do a direct message or even call the person. Uh, yeah, that can that's work. Quite, that's quite a, not aggressive, but it's quite a full-on step to pick up the phone to somebody and say, hey, I sure you share a thing and I think it might not be fact. Like that's a quite, that's yeah. a big inv- emotional investment. That's true. And so that's, that's why I wouldn't say everybody should be doing this all the time. As I said, I ch- pick and choose. <laughs> Often I do that when I think somebody's getting actually scammed. So, uh, yeah. okay. so I think that that's worth uh, picking up the phone when you think somebody's about to be parted for the, from their money in some regard. It's just there's a guy who I follow on Instagram who I is like a, like I've met him maybe four times and he's been posting a lot of like every article about anything negative about the vaccine he's been posting and he's been posting a lot of like wellness related things like the best defense against COVID-19 is is a healthy liver and stuff like that. I'm just like, I don't know. I can be bothered, but also somebody <laughs> should say something, but I don't want that person to be me. Like, what would you do in that circumstance? It's like literally me asking for personal advice here, Ariel. <laughs> How well do you know this person? I've met him like maybe four times. I... Just leave it alone? I would... Yeah, unless you have, unless in the four times you met him, you actually developed like a close personal <laughs> relationship. We did I, don't, not. I mean, I don't know how much you're going to achieve by it. It's more likely than not that it will be perceived as creating a conflict or aggression. So, yeah. But I, I mean, to to be fair, there are ways of approaching it. I think often it's reinforcing that you know, say it's a, they're expressing doubt about the. Um, about the vaccines or something like this, it's it's not good to dismiss the their scepticism because being sceptical is a good sort of way to think often. Mm. It's when that scepticism goes too far. So it's affirming scepticism as a good value, but raising being like, I'm just not sure or framing it as like, I feel that, you know, sort of framing it around the impact it might have on you personally or, you know, like, I've got a lot of questions about uh, the pandemic response as well, but I feel like we need to make sure we're sharing the best information. Like, where did you see this? Or something to start the conversation. I mean, You're like that basically a better human being than me. That's what I just learned there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, if somebody wants to try that sort of framing, uh, let me know how it goes. <laughs> yeah, I'd <laughs> yeah, be very curious to how that goes. Uh, Cam, you, do, what, should, I, should I fight or flight this one? <laughs> the other party who we haven't mentioned in this is the audience. You know, very often, you know, there's you, there's the person sharing it, but then there's 
all the people who see this kind of content who don't know whether it's true or not. And, you know, they may not know as much about vaccines or whatever as as you reading it and you being able to spot that it may not be true or, or kind of misleading. So sometimes I do think that there is merit in at least saying something so that everyone else who hasn't made up their mind may, I guess, think kind of counter to it. But again, it kind of depends on, on the context, you know, like mm. if it's a small Facebook uh, you know, small, a, a, f- a friend who has a small Facebook following, maybe it's not the best thing. It, it really just does depend on the context. All right. I appreciate the very personal advice in a very public context. Uh, both of you, <laughs> thank you so much for doing the show this week. Ariel Bogle, analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. It was such a joy to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for doing it. Cheers, Mark. And Cameron Wilson, whose work you can read in both Business Insider and the technology website Gizmodo. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks, Mark. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. 